I write papers and I'll call people out and they don't like that. And then they say, you don't get to publish because I didn't like what you said. Um, and so the reviews came back on so many of my works being like methodology, 10 out of 10, would read it again, love all that. What I hate is how this makes me feel. And so we're not gonna let you publish that. Yeah, and I got, I got receipts, but yeah, like there's just so many reviews were like, I just disagree with you in your view. And so I'm not gonna, I don't recommend that you get published, but thanks, <laughs> you know? And so finally I was like, you know what? I was reading some works of a critical scholar who, whose advice in these situations was to just create a space where you can do what you wanna do. Have you enjoyed listening to the Incredible Paul podcast? Are you looking for a way to support it? Or maybe you just want some swag? Check out the Incredible Paul store today. We have shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, hats, stickers, and so much more. Go to incredipaul.org, I-N-C-R-E-D-I-Paul.org, and click on the store link. Or go to the link in my socials bio and click on the Incredipaul shop. Looking forward to seeing your Incredipaul look. Your professional development is one of the keys to your career success. When you combine your desire to grow with actionable steps, your journey to success becomes an incredible reality. Hi, I'm Paul Faranbi, and welcome to Incredible Paul Leadership, where we learn how to become the most incredible versions of ourselves by learning from each other. Today, I have the honor of having Dr. Vanessa Rosa on the show. She is a research activist for equity in science education, through the Cuvette Collective, which includes Cuvette Catalyzed and Cuvette Empowered. So that was a little bit about you, but Vanessa, how about you introduce yourself the way you would do it? Sure. Hi, I'm Vanessa. I'm the daughter of immigrants and the granddaughter of freedom fighters in Cuba. Um, it's wow. been my genetic lineage and my heritage to pick up where my family left off mm -hmm. and try to do two things, which is both appreciate the opportunity that we have in the United States while also recognizing the need for freedom and justice and equity reform. And my way of doing that is in science because I liked books more than people growing up and that's how that turned <laughs> out. So <laughs> nice to see you, Paul. <laughs> yeah, nice to see you. I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm really excited about our conversation. And, Me too. Um, and so I, right off the bat, I pronounced your name wrong. It's uh, Vanessa. That's okay. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You don't have to do the accent. Like Vanessa Rosa Santos. You don't have to Vanessa do all that. <laughs> I'd rather yeah. say your name correctly. It's okay. I said your name wrong on mine too. So now we're even. <laughs> I said Faran B, I think. Faran B or something like that. And it's yeah, like, no. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah we're accent, even. Yeah. Now we're even. Yeah. But, but that's amazing as far as being uh, a, a daughter of immigrants, I can I I def directly relate it to that as far as being a, a first generation immigrant from uh, Lagos, Nigeria. And I love what you said as far as how you're doing it is through science. And can can you talk more about that as far as what what you're doing? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because my family they try to understand what I do. But explaining it to them is extremely hard because mm -hmm. I'm the first one in our family to go to college, let alone to get a PhD. 
And so explaining it to them of like, so there's theory and the way that we know the world. And my job is to take that line and just advance it just a little bit farther. And the line that I'm choosing to advance is in, in equity issues related to the teaching and assessment of chemistry. And so it's such a niche thing. And, and the idea of tests even being important and how equity relates to that, it just, it can be a lot to process. So it's, it's a difficult thing to explain, but, you know, being a first generation American comes with a variety of inherited um, roles that you play because you are the explainer to your family. And then you're also the advancer of that generation because you're the first one there. So it's, it's a challenging role. I'm sure you can relate to that, Paul. Have you had a similar experience? Yeah, a, a little bit as far as more so because my, my parents were, well, my parents and myself, first generation American, uh, first generation immigrants. Um, it's different just because my dad actually is an engineer um, by his background. My mom studied teaching. So they both went to college, they both got degrees. I can relate on the science part enough to the engineering side with my dad, but uh, with my mom, she's just like, that sounds great what you're doing. Like, I don't really understand it, but you sound really passionate about it. Uh, but they, they were both really supportive and they placed a lot of value on education. So I'm blessed that that was the case for sure. I completely understand that. But yeah, just, you know, pushing that boundary in terms of science and, and deciding that that's my way to do it. It's, it's not something I decided all in one day. I had all these layers of influence of, of people. And I have to say that, that, you know, I had my good layers of influence, which was my family who are incredible. And, you know, as, as is stereotypical amongst immigrants, but we're all very hardworking um, and my family. And, and we've instilled that in one another. But what I really also had was the influence of, of this, like, I just had a lot of spite. I had a lot of people tell me that, that my physicality was not meant to be in the science world and that really? I should, oh. I've been told to marry for money and divorce for love. I've been told that my what? role is to be pretty and quiet and not what? to do that. The, the machismo. Oh. Yeah. I got a lot of that. I got high school teachers who told me not to worry about studying because i'm just going to be pregnant as a teenager anyway i've had oh yeah i've had professors oh, who man. hit on me and wanted to to date me and and not really care oh, my about God. my own education and my growth as a professional so i've gotten it from both ends where i've gotten this beautiful yeah. influence from my family i've had really great yeah. mentors in academia but i also have a lot of yeah. spite <laughs> that i'm like yeah. i'm gonna do this anyway even though I, I'm not supposed to have a voice here, because it's it's just that's my freedom. I want to be in this space. Yeah, so I'm wow, be that's here. that's disheartening to hear. But I know that's something that is more common that it than it should be. But I know I, I feel like that's a lot of the work that you're doing as well. Is that correct? Well, a lot of my work. It, um, so what I'm experiencing with that conversation, or what I was bringing up, was more of this like sort of genderized um, prejudices or, uh, yeah. I don't know, just misogyny that was kind of thrusted upon me. But a lot of my work actually has to do with, okay. with more racial equity. And that I'm, you know, I'm fairly white passing and, 
experience a lot of privilege on, on those realms, unfortunately. And so being able to deconstruct that and recognize the, the impact it has on an assessment level has been something I've had to learn and do a lot more listening on than talking on. And so it's as much as, you know, doing gender studies would be mm-hmm. fascinating. It's racial equity is where I've ended up on okay. my, on no, a professional level. I can level. definitely understand that. They're, they're both very mm-hmm. important. But at what point did you start to, to gravitate towards that? Was that something that just kind of happened or like through your PhD or undergrad? I kind of talk me through that. Yeah. So for me, it was, you know, I mentioned the genderized kind of um, mm-hmm. fronts that I had to overcome. Um, there yeah. was a little bit of it that was racialized, like the, the comment about being pregnant anyway. That one has oh. some intersectionality to it because Latinos and Latinas, we can be, you know, Latinx can be perceived as having children young because of our cultural mm-hmm. norms and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did experience a bit of that. I have had... Um, situations and you know i could talk about them but they're so minor compared to what most people go through Um, just enough to say that i experienced some personally before getting in academia and then i fell in love with teaching chemistry um, particularly because people talked about how much they hated chemistry (laughs) you know (laughs) why do so many people hate chemistry i don't understand when you introduce yourself as a chemist, is it like nine out of 10 who go like, I hated chemistry? <laughs> yeah, so when I tell people I'm a chemical engineer, they're like, so So I thought it was just around engineers because I, I, most engineers don't like chemistry. So every time I tell them, they're like, I hate chemistry. But so I didn't realize it was just widespread people not liking chemistry. At least that's been my experience. Almost like nine out of 10, I would say. That's a made up statistic, but I would say the the vast majority (laughs) will be like, oh, you are involved with chemistry, you and all of you in your field. I hate all of it. Throw it all in the trash. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, I can't help but but love an underdog. And so I I really wanted to study chemistry just so that I could teach it better than what we were being taught. And and I just really got into it for that reason. And I loved it so much. And, you know, getting the opportunity to teach it in a way that I thought was engaging was really fun. And, and I got mm-hmm. the opportunity to work at a community college. And I really got to see between, you know, studying chemistry at a university school, a state school, and teaching chemistry at a community college, even mm-hmm. there was some, some racial disparity that was just very oh, wow. apparent. It's just so, so apparent. Well, I just saw that I had a lot of, of students who were coming in and the way that I was interacting with them, that didn't seem to translate into the room where departmental conversations were being had about what to do with those students. So mm-hmm. for example, my interactions with them suggested that they're wonderful students, they're showing up, they're working hard. Mm-hmm. They also have a lot of additional burdens of, of family time issues, sometimes economic issues, access to food. Mm-hmm. And then they have all of these other wonderful strengths where they have great family support. They have a lot of engagement with their sciences that they're studying. So I just noticed a more nuanced conversation, whereas in the department rooms, I heard a lot of, of deficited speak around the students of like oh. at risk and these students oh. are just troubled students or they're they're oh, not wow. likely to succeed just a lot of like oh, a lot of hate you know yeah. and it, it got me feeling very like are you all noticing that the majority of the students that you're speaking ill of 
are of a particular race, like that is kind of messed up, don't you think? (laughs) And people would be like, oh, it's not about, it's not about race. You know, it's, it's not about that. And it's just, okay, maybe it isn't, but at the same time, what you're doing isn't helpful. So let's, you know, I mean, it is about race, but let's just deconstruct it as though it isn't because you're not being able to comprehend that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 At the teaching level is really, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it sounds like unconscious bias at its finest. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was in those teaching experiences that I I realized that that's what I wanted to do. And I got passed Mm. up for this, this promotion I was really excited about because they were going to hire, I was an assistant or an adjunct professor who was also Mm -hmm. working in the resource center as a tutor and they had an opening as a professor. And I thought like, oh, I'm perfect for that. I'd like to do it. I had a master's. I was all set. And I got passed up because the person, they had an outside hire who had a PhD and they said like, it was pretty equal, but the PhD is what, what got them there. And so I thought, well, okay, let's go then. I need a PhD. <laughs> That's all you had to say. I'm off. Yeah. I'm going to go to school now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I did research to find who was studying students who are perceived in that way. And I mm-hmm. found a scholar who was doing that at the University of South Florida. And that was, that's the rest of that journey. <laughs> That's amazing. So then what did you, what was your master's in? Was it also in chemistry as well or something else? It was in pharmaceutical chemistry. Yeah, I thought I was going to be making medicines. My whole track was like, oh, the only doctor is a medical doctor because I didn't know I'm first generation, right? And then I went to college and I was like, oh, there's like research doctors so that they don't have to deal with some of the trauma of, you know, having patients. <laughs> and so I, I started doing that and got into it. And I, I fell in love with pharmaceutical chemistry and medicinal chemistry because mm. I just find diseases fascinating. And, mm. um, and from there, I fell in love with teaching and, and decided to do my PhD in chemistry, but with an emphasis on, on critical theory and how we teach and assess. That is amazing. I love that. Just the yeah. the journey that you had as far as the discovering it and going deeper into what you really wanted to do. It was a meandering path, but I think all the best ones meander, right? Yes, I I agree. <laughs> I, especially especially on this show a lot, I I want to make it clear to people that it is impossible, not impossible, but very unlikely that what you wanted to do you when you first got to college is what you're still going to want to do. Maybe even when you're leaving college or not to talk of like five years later, like it changes yeah. and it kind of morphs into what you want just because you, we, there's only so much life you've experienced when you're 18 coming into college. And I think college opens up that world and then getting a master's opens it more and PhD more and more. And then you can, and there's so many paths that you can create for what you are truly want to do. I agree. And I'm so glad you're normalizing that. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Well, I want to talk about what you're doing with Kuvet and how that even started. Because you were just talking about uh, teaching at a community college and then going back to school for your PhD because you wanted to hone in on your teach, uh, teaching skills. So what what was next or how did this Kuvet journey, how did that start? Spite. Uh, <laughs> really? I, I sound like such a spiteful person, but man, some of the best things I've done in my life have been done just because just someone told me I couldn't. Wrong. 
Yeah. Someone told me I couldn't. And that's, that to me yeah. is like, yeah, bet. Let's go. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's just, I love that. it's like, I love that. you know, it's like, I dare you for me. Or I'm just like, okay, let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, basically I, you know, like I mentioned, I found that scholar at the university of South Florida and they were really supportive in me exploring critical theory and applying that to my research. But what it uncovered was that a lot of the research that had been done in equity and chemistry education research specifically to that point had been really harmful. Um, as I was applying the critical lens to it, I started noticing that we're, we're, there's a lot of white saviorism in the words that we're using. There's a lot of deficit talk in there. There's a lot wow. of um, methodologies that are supremacy based that are not helping us achieve anything because they're just perpetuating yeah. the issues. So yeah. that was hard because right now you're in charge of advancing the theory base a little bit. And that does require you being, if you're being critical and you're applying a lens that involves critiquing what has come before you and identifying mm -hmm. and educating your colleagues about the harms that that does and, and how we could do it better if we aligned ourselves with critical theorists who have actually made really good ground in these fields, in law, in psychology, in neuroscience, in uh, economics, and in other fields, and being able to say, like, look at all these great things that our colleagues mm -hmm. are doing over here and the achievements that they're making by applying a more um, <laughs> up-to-date view of things. Yeah, and so, you know, people got offended. People really got hurt. And there was this whole mentality, at least in science, um, in chemistry education, of you have to honor the greats. You have to honor the giants who came before you and who carved oh. out this path and like, la, 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 oh, you know. Yeah. And it's, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Yes, they have done great things. Our colleagues have done great things, but they mm -hmm. have also caused a lot of harm. And mm -hmm. we all have, right? Is there any one of us yeah. who can say we haven't perpetuated some sort of toxic norm in our culture? Because mm -hmm. I can't say that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, yeah. I write papers and I'll call people out and they don't like that. And then they say, you don't get to publish because I didn't like what you said. Um, wow. And so the reviews came back on so many of my works being like methodology, 10 out of 10 would read it again. Love all that. What I hate is how this makes me feel. And so we're not going to so let you publish that. At all. Yeah. Wow. And I got, I got receipts, but yeah, like just so many <laughs> reviews were like, I just disagree with you in your view. And so I'm not going to, oh, I no. don't recommend that you get published, but thanks. You know? Oh, and so finally I was like, you know what? <laughs> I was reading some works of a critical scholar who, whose advice in these situations was to just create a space where you can do what you want to do to achieve what mm -hmm. you want to achieve. Instead of trying to make it work in the box that you're in, in the mm -hmm. systems that are already in place, separate yourself from that entirely. And so I was like, mm -hmm. okay, that means starting my own business, starting my own journal, starting my own spaces where, where my colleagues who also want to discuss these things or even just be welcoming of different perspectives and opinions. Mm -hmm can host a forum and a, and a space for that. And so it started as a journal and then people were like, but we want a place to talk about the journal. And so I was like, okay, well now it's a professional learning community too. And then it started, it went from there to being like, hey, can we hire you as a consultant to work on our project? And I was like, sure. Now it's a consulting firm also. And then they were like, okay, well, and this is the next step. Now a lot of people are contacting me being like, hey, you're doing really cool stuff with this consulting thing. And I'm getting really sick of my job in academia how do I do what you did? And so now the firm wow. is evolving into like a professional development space for those people. It's just, yeah, it keeps growing. 
that is incredible i i love that how it just keeps growing really naturally and you just you're, you're taking on more and doing more has has that been difficult at all like taking on more and doing more what is that process been? how do you know that you had the capacity to go and do more i wish my colleague tamara was here <laughs> because they would tell you because they've been with me on this journey oh it's it's been there's been seasons let's go with that okay. first yeah and in one of the seasons we were exploring the literature around workaholism and uh -huh. i only got into it because my colleague at another institution tweeted about how their health is declining so fast and now that they're an assistant wow. professor on the tenure track they're only two years in and they've noticed their their physical mental health has just been completely wrecked Oh man! And it got me thinking like, oh man, they really have it bad. We should study this and help them. And as I was reading the stuff, I could feel, so I believe in God and I could, I could just feel God being yeah. like, you, you picking up what we're showing you? <laughs> are, you are you processing that this is you too? <laughs> I got called out so many times, oh, so many times. Man. Yeah, they were like workaholism looks like this, and I was like, oh, and then they were like, like workaholism is yeah. also this. <laughs> so oh. it put me on this journey, Paul. It put me on a journey, and it was months, and I'm still in it. But where I'm at right now is that I limit myself to six hours of work per day, and that's oh. focused, time recorded, tracked work. So it's it's not simple to do, even though it sounds shorter than a normal day. But once that limit gets hit, it is my job to disconnect. I have mm. two young children. I have a, a beautiful husband. I have this family that needs nurturing. I have a bajillion plants. I have a lot of responsibilities <laughs> and I can't just be slaving away at the computer and, and not processing life, mm. so. Are you wondering what's next? Has everything you tried failed? Or maybe you just feel stuck? Then coaching might be right for you. The coaching relationship is a relationship totally centered on you. If you're tired of running on the hamster wheel of life and want to start to see results, reach out to Incredipal for help. So what are you waiting for? Go to incredipal.org slash coaching, I-N-C-R-E-D-I-P-A-U-L dot org slash coaching or at I am Incredipal on all my socials. Or you can click the link in the bio for your free coaching session. I want to make sure you become the most incredible version of yourself. That's what I do now. I limit myself and I have all these systems in place. And workaholism has, has been a, a very educative journey for me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, that's, yeah, that's a, a lot to unpack. I could definitely relate on being on the workaholic spectrum i'll put it that way and i tell people i think i, I said on the last podcast who did i'm a recovering perfectionist just oh. I, I want things done in a particular way and i'm yes. usually my own worst critic but working on it but yeah like for what you were mentioning about being a plant mom and a mom mom and a wife <laughs> as well yeah, yeah that just learning to have that balance and it's it's definitely a journey it's not something that you just flip the switch and you just continue to do it 
because I'm, I'm sure there, at least for me personally, there's time, I have good days, I have bad days, because I know when I, I shared with your group, the stuff that I was doing as far as this podcast, the coaching, yeah. the nonprofit, and that's all on top of working a normal nine to five in manufacturing, which is not the most calm environment to work in. So. No, no. And I know you're married and you are faith based and, and you, yeah. you, there's just yeah. a lot yeah. that also comes with that. It's, it's maintaining a relationship in a loving space requires mm -hmm. a lot of attention and mm -hmm. it's, you know, it gets so, I think our, I'm going to say our culture referring to United States, you know, or even mm -hmm. academia, I think our oh, culture yeah. really doesn't have a great grasp of, of what it takes to lovingly invest in a partnership and not let work oh. consume your life no it's incentivized no. <laughs> yeah 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 i gotta say like you know you mentioned perfectionism it's so hard when the qualities that helped you succeed keep you from thriving it's so mm. hard <laughs> that yeah because it the, works you know that perfectly <laughs> It's not yeah. fair. <laughs> You're yeah, like, really this fair. got me here yeah. and now it's killing me. And like, what the heck? <laughs> I thought this was supposed to be good all the way. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I'm curious as far as what has your journey been with this whole idea of work-life balance? I have some thoughts on what work-life balance is, but I'm curious as far as what... Was there like an aha moment that I know you mentioned when you were doing that workaholic study, was that it? Or was there something before and that was kind of like the trigger that helped you start moving in the right direction? Oh man, there were lots of things during that. Mm -hmm. So we spent a whole month, Tamara and I, and we were studying all the literature on workaholism and, and what it is and how to identify it and why it manifests and how it persists. And just, just we spent a whole month discussing it. Mm -hmm. And everything happened incrementally. Like it was just one discovery after another. And like I said, at first I thought I was doing this for my colleagues. Cause I was like, I'm good. I don't work. I have children. So I have them who remind yeah. me like, Hey, have we mm -hmm. eaten today? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I got, I got to make nutritious meals. I got a color. I need Lego time. Like, you know, well, I thought I, I was doing point. really good. Right. I thought I was doing great. Yeah. But some of the watershed moments that really helped crystallize my understanding of just how workaholic I was, was, so one thing was asking me to track my time. Mm. That was a big one for me, tracking my time and actually seeing the pie chart of work versus family versus partnership oh. versus self. That Ooh. was like, wow, oh. okay. Like how much am I actually... You know, and, and how, how, dis, how, how do you say unaligned is that from my beliefs as a person? Do I believe that I'm a workhorse and that's who I am and that's everything about me? Or do I have a faith? Do I have a husband? Do I have children? You know, so that was a big thing for me, time tracking. The other one was monotasking. Oh, man, monotasking is hard. <laughs> so can you imagine? So they were like, okay, when you drive, just drive. When you cook just cook <laughs> don't listen to a podcast don't do nothing else just cook yeah <laughs> oh. i was like oh that sounds awful but that's how you <laughs> detox and then you start to realize like wow i've been doing 10 things at once 
Mm. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. And then there was a third one I wanted to tell you. Let me see if it comes back to me. It was tracking my time. It was monotasking. Oh my goodness. Okay, so this one I'm still struggling with. I'm just going to be honest. Boring breaks. What do you mean by that? So the goal is to do three a day during your work hours. It's to pull yourself away from work and do nothing. Not cleaning, laundry, listening to nothing. Don't be on your phone. Don't have a conversation. Stare at a wall and do nothing for at least 10 minutes. 10 minutes? (laughs) 10 minutes. Three times a day. That's 30 minutes total where you're to do nothing. That is... I know. The anxiety. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. The stress of that. When did you start your boring breaks? Okay. I've been trying to do them for the last month. I have failed. I have not successfully had not one boring break for the last, like, this whole time that I've been trying. But you're at least... I'm trying, but... Yeah. It's hard. I've gotten five minutes. I, I got five minutes. And so that was the best one that I had. And I'm bad at it. But that's why I need to do it, right? Yeah. I can safely say that's probably four minutes and 30 seconds longer than I would last. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> you got to try. It's yeah. so important. And, and you know, I know that I'm a hypocrite. I totally will accept that. But I'm very hypocritical right now. But I got to say, even just monotasking was a really when you can't take a vacation because there's too many deadlines that are stacked on one another, monotasking makes a big difference. And it really points out to you just how much you're, you're doing all at once and how ineffective you are at doing all of those things at once. You are mm-hmm. so much better when you just do, you know, how many tortillas I've burned trying to like heat them on the, so we have gas stove and we heat okay. them up. And I'm thinking like, look, it'll just take a second. I'm just going to go over here right next to it. And I'm just going to just stir the pot over here. It'll take a second. You know, how many tortillas have caught on fire in our house because of me. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> oh, you're good. That, that's like, yeah. I know you were talking about like the American culture, like what it talks about. And it really incentivizes multitasking. And even if you like, so I work with, people with careers a lot. And if you just look at job descriptions, like one of the, the line items is usually able to take on multiple projects or stuff at the same time. I, I so, so that's an expectation. So I think that's why it's so yeah. hard to monotask because it's ingrained into our, the American society that you cannot just do one thing at once, even though, multitasking is a misnomer. We're just switching back and forth because our brains can't really do multiple things at the same time. But it's, I think that's why it's such a struggle. It's so hard, Paul. And it's really hard too when you, I even have the privilege of working for myself. And you would Mm -hmm. think that, you know, with that blessing, I would be able, I'd be so much better at all of this. Mm -hmm. But I'm still operating very much in the way that I was taught and, and I would say groomed even from like mm. elementary school age. And it's, you know, I see it in my own children when they're going to school and, mm. and the mentality they have around, you know, they get a little bit of money and they want to spend it all. And so my partner and I have been teaching them that you, you can spend it, you can save it, which is basically spending it because of inflation, mm. or you can invest it. Mm. And we're teaching them 
what that means and, and how to go about it. There's just so many from finances to how you spend your time. I would say mm -hmm. those two pieces, there's many toxic things in United mm -hmm. States culture. So don't take yeah. this as the only two, but these two pieces are very big calls to reckoning for all of us. Yeah, I, I agree that those are, I think those are the two biggest, honestly. And I think, yeah, we were talking about the monotasking versus the multitasking, as well as these, these boring breaks. So I can, <laughs> the, so the boring breaks, like I, it's going to take, like, I'm going to process it honestly over the next few days, maybe week to even think about how I'm going to do that. Cause the first thing I think of, take your time. <laughs> yeah. The first thing I think about when I think of boring break is like, Oh, I can do a lot of reflection about how things are going. Blah, 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 because <laughs> I can be productive. Yeah, I know. That's yeah. naturally what yeah. I do. So I do have time to I unplug, mm -hmm. but I usually use that for reflection. So the idea of doing a, taking a boring break is it's honestly, it's like terrifying to me just to be honest. But I, I, from what you're saying, it's definitely needed. Me too. It's so scary. It still causes me anxiety. Whenever it's around time to do one, my heart races. I have, I get sweaty palms. I have a really hard time doing it. And, and I almost will be like, oh, just 10 more minutes of work and then I'll do it. And then I'll forget. <laughs> and then that's how it disappears. <laughs> but it's, it's really, it's so challenging because you, you're, you're, you're intended to lay there. Right. And the goal is to let your thoughts come and go like ships in a port. You're allowed to have the reflection thoughts, but you're not supposed to make it an intentional reflection exercise. You're just supposed to be like, oh, reflecting would be nice. I'm just going to let that go, though, and I'm not going to do it. Oh, there's laundry to do. That's fine. It'll get done later. And <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard. And this is why I have failed at it so much. But it's mm -hmm. in that failure that I realize how much I need to keep trying because mm -hmm. I should be as a as a rational human being with a, a normal brain. Oh, not normal, but you know what I'm saying. A brain. I should be able to just chill for ten minutes. Mm -hmm. I should be able to do that. That should be a normal thing. And it's so odd and foreign to me that it causes me literal anxiety, and I have a really hard time doing it. So don't feel bad if if you feel that way too. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> I failed at it for a month. <laughs> No, you're good. I, I wouldn't say you're you're failing. I would say you're learning from it. And that's, yes, that's, that's true. That's really the only way you build habits. I don't know if you read the book Atomic Habits or heard yes. about it. Yeah, <laughs> but I think like like from what he was saying in that book, what James Clear said, like even when you're trying to do something new, as simple as going to the gym, just getting your gym clothes on or going for like five minutes, just making incremental steps that 1% better every day. And so you're at five minutes after your month, your goal is 10 minutes. I think you're making great progress. That's so kind. And you're right. That reframing is needed. That perfectionist in me, you see, it's, it's yeah. still there. It's still demanding that I do everything perfectly, even take a break. And so I'm really <laughs> glad that you helped me reframe that. Thank you. <laughs> No, you're, you're good. It's it's something I've been more intentional about. And definitely what I work with, with the coaching is your words are, are really powerful and as simple as reframing yeah. things or even the fact, and that was something I didn't realize I was doing on the last podcast. It was really a lot about uh, mental toughness or relentless solution focus. 
And so the person I had, she was talking about, but when I talked about that I'm a recovering perfectionist, that's a positive thing because I'm no longer seeing myself as a perfectionist. I see that I'm on the journey away from perfectionism. So that was something I just learned recently that, so I guess I'm moving in the, the right direction because I can be cynical at times, but I being more intentional about being positive. I mean, I'm cynical at my jokes because I like to make people laugh, but like as far as with myself, I'd be more intentional about how I'm coming off to myself as well as to others. That's so key. That's so, so key. And, and, you know, one thing that, that complements that, that I've also been, been learning and thank you for sharing that is just the idea of how you talk to yourself is mm. so important. And if, yeah. if you could take what you're going to say to yourself and say it to someone else, but you wouldn't, mm. you know, there's lots of stuff that I say to myself all the time that I would never say to my children, that I would never mm. say to my husband, that I would yeah. never say to anyone I love. And so what does that mean about how I feel about myself? Mm. And, you know, it's time to unpack that because part yeah. of perfectionism is also, there's a little masochism in there. There's a little bit mm. of like, you know, I'm going to be perfect because I'm not good enough yet. Mm, and so being wow. able to unpack that is, is hard. Yeah. So I, I like how you, you, you frame that with that filter of not what you say to yourself, thinking about saying it to others. Because oftentimes we just think about to ourselves and you're like, it's not doing any harm. It's you saying it to me. But what you're saying, right. you say that if you're saying that to someone else, you're doing really the same harm to yourself, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And that, that's, that reframe has changed a lot about how mm -hmm. I deal with anger and, and any rage that I would feel in a situation. And just, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about, I don't know if other people experience this, but when you make a mistake, I, I have a tendency to berate myself. Mm -hmm. And even if there was no possible way that I had the information to make the right decision when I was making the decision, mm -hmm. even if I didn't have that, I would still berate myself for not knowing better and not doing better and not being perfect. And, and what was I thinking and that kind of thing. And then I, I think of nowadays, I try to think of my, my children and, mm -hmm. and their beautiful faces. And, and would I say all of that to them if they made a mistake and I wouldn't dream of talking to them like that. I wouldn't yeah. in my wildest nightmares speak to them the way that I speak mm -hmm. to me in those moments. And so that to me is, is pointing out that I, I love them and I need to work on loving me the way that I mm -hmm. love them. And that's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a tough lesson. Yeah, that, that's definitely really tough. And it, it takes a lot of self-awareness to even realize that because most people aren't at that place with self-awareness or they don't want, because I, I think there's some of it, because I've been there, that you don't even want to look within because you're afraid of what you're going to find that you may not like. Yeah. So you just kind of distract yourself with different things and trying to stay productive or I, not even productive. I would say stay busy with activities, but activities doesn't necessarily mean production because we may not be doing the right things as far as like, I know you were saying earlier, as far as, when you're doing all these different stuff at work and with family and seeing like how the pie chart of the time you're spent, we may say that, yes, we really value our relationships and our families and our friends. But when we look at what we're doing, we take an assessment 
on the time mm-hmm. we're spending that we're on, not even the time, because the time can vary, but as far as what we're prioritizing, we we can see that we're putting the stuff that's important, we're putting it off, and the stuff that's urgent that comes up, we're prioritizing. And when we don't prioritize what's important, what I've been learning is that those important stuff can be lost. So I don't want to lose yeah. those things. I think you said that so well. It's, it can be so easy. And one thing that helped me realize just how bad my pie chart was, was I was tasked with coming up with three sets of, of journeys that I want my life to go on. Mm-hmm. And so one journey was supposed to be personal. Mm-hmm. One journey was supposed to be interpersonal. And the other journey was supposed to be career. And I was able to come up with the career one immediately. I want this, 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 this on yeah. this timeline with these goals, with these projects, mm-hmm. like, boom, I could knock out so many spreadsheets of that. Yeah. But then on a personal and interpersonal level, I I was like, I don't even know how to make a goal. on a... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what my journey, and it took me forever to come across mm-hmm. what it ended up being, which was yeah. just to, in, how do you say, enhance my physical health. The, the interpersonal journey was to, um, oh man, see, see, it's so hard. (laughs) The, the interpersonal journey was to have a a bonded, loving family. Mm -hmm. And then the last one was of course, to, to achieve financial freedom. Cause I realized that that's really what my goal is. And, and, you know, careers are important. Equity is important. All of that is important, but more than anything, I'm just trying to liberate myself and being truthful about that is hard. Because you want, especially as an academic, like you want to be the bleeding heart who's like, I'm mm-hmm. here for the world. And, and you are. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. I want to be able to make my own choices. And I want to be able to advance the world in the way that I, I have the power to. And sometimes the bureaucracies and the policies get in the mm-hmm. way of that. So it's, yeah. Anyway, going back to the notion of the pie chart, mm-hmm. when I had to make goals, and then break each of those goals down into three goals and then break each of those down into three projects, I realized, wow, like doing this on the personal and interpersonal level is extremely hard. And it's because I haven't flexed those neurons. I haven't created neural pathways for developing goals around personhood and family. Mm. And that was really sad to realize that. Yes. But I think the important thing from what you shared is that you did realize it because it's it's really easy to get caught up in the time that was lost or what we were doing wrong but yeah what i've been learning and what i tell people is that the time that has been passed whether we feel bad about it or we continue to move forward it's it's already been passed so we can't change it i think what's more important is what we're able to take from it and learn from it and do something different like it could be, I could use the work better, but I would say different because our priorities in life can change. So when you are in in college or in grad school, you don't have a family, you don't have kids, you there's you're perfectly fine focusing on your academic career, being honed in on that. Hopefully not at the expense of your physical mm-hmm. health, because I know there's that that can happen as well. But as you transition to have having a relationship, having partners, having kids, that starts to become your priority. So there's different mm-hmm. seasons in life. And as you enter those seasons, it's important to understand how to transition 
and that that's something I'm living through right now, honestly. So I got married last year, and the job I had been doing, <laughs> the job I had been doing for four years at that time, I traveled a lot to say the least. So ranging from seventy percent of the time, sometimes ninety percent of the time, there were two. Wow. Yeah, so there were two or three different times where I would be on the road eleven straight weeks. So not like I would come I'll leave on a Monday, come back on a Friday. But being the fact that I live by myself and my wife and I did it long distance before as she moved and then we got married and everything, I could totally do that. And I still had relationships and friends with people in whatever cities I went to. So I think that helped a lot. But as we she moves here, we got married. I started to see that as far as our our marriage as something that it's really critical early on and really in general but definitely in the first year of marriage because we're still like learning what it means to, to live together and be partners and all that stuff so made a decision to find a job where i'm not traveling a lot actually ended up getting a job i didn't travel at all and so that has helped so it's been about coming up on nine months now but i would say i've learned so much and still learning and that's just being in a different season that yeah just being in a different season that's such a big transition and it's really great that you made that decision to prioritize your family and Mm -hmm. and make that shift into the season of being a husband that's that's a an admirable choice and i'm really glad that you (laughs) did that for you and your partner that's awesome Yes, for sure. She's You're she's a great coach, it. by the way. I wanted to say that. Oh, she uh, is worth it. And I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Oh, th- so thank you for that as far as <laughs> uh, learning. And honestly, as a coach, I just try to, and it's like the whole premise of this podcast, try to make people the, the best versions they can be and just unlocking what's already in you. Because that's what coaching really is, is there's, there's nothing special about me or any good culture tell you there's nothing special about them. They're just unlocking what's already in you and helping you to create a plan to develop you further. I love that. I really like how you, you throughout the conversation have, have kept the framing, not toxically positive, not ignoring negative for the favor of seeing the positive, but being able to acknowledge the other side of, of, being sad about things and letting mm-hmm. things go and the benefit of that and the, the mm-hmm. education of that and emphasizing that side of the transaction instead of just trying to ignore it and shove it aside and be like, it'll all work out. You know, <laughs> you did really well with that. And I, I think that you're going to be, and you are an excellent coach. Oh, thank you. It's, it's a journey for me too, because I think it's easier to tell people what to do than actually do it yourself. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> It's just the nature of the of really anything. I, I there's a funny thing that people say that I don't know if you've heard it. You may have heard, may or not have heard it, but they say like if you can't do, you should coach or you should teach it. So, yeah. <laughs> and so I mean, it, I it's funny. That. Yeah, it, it's funny, but I think that's why I, I try to be really intentional about acknowledging where I am seemingly lacking because it, it is a journey it is continually progressing and not just pushing off to the side because the longest time i'd be like oh i'm good and then if you when i don't acknowledge it, there's no way to change it no way to improve it 
Yeah, it's hard. It's it's you have to be willing to make the change, and you mm-hmm. before that you have to be able to to see it. Yes. And most of the time, you can't really see it unless you've seen it done well. Yeah. It's you know, it's all about who you surround yourself with and and what you decide to put inside of your brain as fuel for your future. Because you can Absolutely. just spend I don't know I know a lot of people just spend a lot of time doing truth and that sort of thing and. And I got sucked into that hole and I sometimes Mm -hmm. still do. But then I think about what is it that I'm programming my brain for Mm -hmm. by listening to this over and over. And Mm -hmm. could I spend that time maybe studying psychology and studying how Mm -hmm. I can improve my my mindset and thinking Mm -hmm. about learning about finances because that's a a whole another world that, you know, first generation Americans usually don't get to know a lot about. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah, we could talk about that, I think. <laughs> yeah, they could do like a yeah. whole three-part podcast series just on that. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> From like the FAFSA to... Yep. So, yeah, so many things. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, All the way through Bitcoin. Let's go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, so with Bitcoin as well. And it's cryptocurrency as well. <laughs> but... We we are about out of time. I really enjoyed our conversation. But I want to make sure there isn't something else, at least about you, your story, about Kavet in general, that you haven't shared that you do want to share. If you're a science educator, we would love to have you join us. Feel free to come and check out the, the Kivet Collective. It's there to serve you. Our mission is to connect and empower one another. And we'd love to have you there. And if you're not, that's cool. You can support us too. You can also be a part of the group. We still love you, but we're yeah. really here for the science educator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. No, I, I love it. I love your mission. I love your passion. Like everything you shared about your journey, it definitely it resonates with me as well. It's perfectionism is something that I feel like in the science field is especially with this whole idea of publishing or, or perish and continuing to, mm. to progress, it's really prevalent. Not to talk about American society with workaholism that you talked about, you share your journey about that. And even um, creating Cuvette out of spite, which I think is amazing <laughs> that you're able to take something that is seemingly negative and grow something phenomenal out of it. I love that. I've made a career out of it. <laughs> that's, good. That's, good. that's my go-to, I guess. It's a part of being a plant mom, I think. But, yeah. You know, I did want to acknowledge that, you know, I'll leave everybody and, and you with this thought that, that really shook me. This is the number one thought that shook me when I was learning about workaholism, hmm. that workaholism is fundamentally an addiction. And Ooh. addictions to their core are fear-based. And so when you feel yourself being pulled in to something, the question that you could ask yourself is what I'm afraid of. I cannot think of a better way to end that. (laughs) Good luck. Yeah. When you pull yourself feeling addicted. Wait, can you say that one more time? I think I'm going to push. Yeah. Yeah, when you feel yourself getting sucked in, because you know how you wake up and immediately it's like work or, mm. you know, you're, you're trying to spend time with your family, but it's work, you know, mm-hmm. when you feel, and that can go with any addiction, when you feel mm. yourself having those thoughts where your gravity is outside of you and you're getting pulled into mm. your addiction, the question you can ask yourself is, what am I afraid of? Wow. Every addiction is, is centered in fear. So our, most of the time with perfectionists and workaholism, 
it's are you afraid you're not good enough and mm. exploring that and is, is hard but that's asking yourself that question is a really good start what am i afraid of am i afraid i'm going to miss a deadline why mm. why am i afraid i'm going to miss that deadline do i not believe in myself that i can get it done in the time allotted why wow did i not give myself enough time because i expect myself to do too much am i not being kind to myself okay why am i doing that <laughs> just keep following that yeah. down and eventually you're gonna you're gonna hit some bedrocks of truth of maybe i don't i don't love myself enough maybe i don't honor and respect my energy enough and you know good luck with that <laughs> yeah yeah the, so have a good session that, with your therapist <laughs> yeah seriously yeah so everyone listening if you're not if you're listening you should be watching on youtube you have some homework to do as far as what vanessa just shared <laughs> that you need to ask yourself why, what is pulling you through? What are you afraid of? I love that. I have some homework to do. So, so I don't know how long that homework is going to take me. I'll probably, I'll follow up with you. That's uh, hold me accountable as far as what am I afraid of? Why am I working so hard? But no, I, I've loved this conversation, everything you shared. I want to make sure people can connect with you on your socials, websites, where every you want people to connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Paul, if you're blessed, you will have a lifetime to work on it. And you guys can all connect with us at um, all the social handles are QVET.org. And if you Google QVET Collective, you should be able to find something about it. Because uh, QVET is a weird word. And, you know, there's lots of ways to pronounce it. And, <laughs> and also you can find me on my socials at Vanessa Rosa PhD. Because uh, awesome. I had to flex that I got it. Yes, you, you have to. You have to. I do. It's a, it's a big accomplishment. So thanks again for being on the podcast and for everyone listening or watching. I hope you learned from Vanessa's story and you can keep being incredible. Be sure to rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'll see you here next time. And be incredible. Incredible. incredible.